welcome to Forward Physio, the show that gives you high-quality information about injury and rehabilitation, performance, and health. My name is Noah Mandel, and I'm a resident physiotherapist from Toronto, Canada. I created this podcast to provide you with educational content, not medical advice. Please seek advice from a qualified healthcare professional if you are currently dealing with a health-related concern. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a review. I would deeply appreciate it, and you would also be doing your part in helping the podcast grow so that we could provide this information to more and more people. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I am so excited to share this one with you because I had the pleasure of speaking with someone that I really look up to, and that person is Greg Lehman. Greg, who, like myself, lives in Toronto, Ontario, is one of the most well-respected experts in the world of physiotherapy. Every profession needs somebody like Greg. One of Greg's strongest attributes as a thinker is his ability to not just challenge other people's beliefs, but his own. Despite having read more research than most people and having the ability to cite just about any scientific paper from the top of his head, Greg remains curious, humble, and does not pretend like he has all the answers. His ability to be comfortable in the gray area and challenges his own biases and others is what makes him such a valuable part of this profession, and he continues to push the needle forward year after year. Greg has a really strong influence on how I think and how I practice as a clinician. So again, it was such a pleasure to have him on the podcast. As you listen to this podcast, I hope you appreciate the content that Greg delivers, but even more than that, I hope you really appreciate the critical thinking and the open-mindedness behind the things that he's saying. As you can tell, I'm a fan. And if you don't know Greg, I hope you are too after you listen to this. So without further ado, I bring to you Greg Lehman. All right. Greg, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. I guess I wanted to start off by congratulating you. I see that you're improving on your backflips and you're getting oh, a little yeah. more confident on a skateboard. So well done there. Yeah, I don't know about that, but yeah, I'm maintaining on my backflips. There's no more improvement. There's a period where you weren't able to do them, right? Oh, well, it's because I have frozen shoulder. Yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> I only picked it up five years ago, so I had like a good learning curve at the start, and now it's getting harder to pick up new tricks. Fair enough. Anyway, you're still yeah. dealing with the shoulder? No, it's awesome. It's 100%. I can hang on it now. Nice. Yeah. Okay, great. Cool. So for those who don't know you, Greg, do you mind just giving us a little bit of a background on yourself? Uh, you know, you have a background in Cairo and physio, education, just about everything. So for those who don't know your story, do you mind sharing it? Yeah, academically, uh, a bachelor's in kinesiology. So it was a lot of biomechanics and exercise physiology. I was, uh, then I did a master's in spine biomechanics at Waterloo, at Waterloo. When I was there, I was a strength and conditioning coach uh, at Laurier. Uh, my master's was on like spine biomechanics, but like more uh, manual therapy and then um, exercise uh, biomechanics, but primarily EMG, some kinematics where you put sensors on the back to measure how it's moving. Uh, then I went to Cairo college. They're awesome. They let me have a research program. It was pretty mediocre, but we got to do like a lot of fun research projects that otherwise wouldn't get done. Cause they're kind of, kind of small potatoes, but I really liked them. Um, and then 
Uh, and then I was in clinical practice for years. And then I went back to school and got a master's in physio at, at Queens because we live in Kingston. Uh, and then uh, I was in practice for years. And then I realized I wanted to teach again, not do any research. So the past eight years, I'm still in clinical practice, but I, uh, most of my time is spent like teaching and clinical education and all that stuff. That's it. About teaching, it's, a, it's not in universities or is it just guest no, lectures sometimes? No, I don't think I could do that. Uh, it's always, it's been my, my own weekend seminar and all that stuff, right? I have two okay. years, like the Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science, which is like eight years old now, and then uh, a running one, which is like the running manifestation of Reconciling Biomechanics. Got it. I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of running. I took the the first one, Reconciling Biomechanics yeah, and Pain Science. Uh, that was great. You know, it, it's so far the only continuing education course I've I've actually done. Um, but it really influenced my practice since then. It really made things much more simple in the clinic. For yeah, myself. we had a good group, though. That Like, my course is really dependent on the group sometimes. Hmm. Once you get a good group of people who are talking and sharing and finding common threads, I think you lucked out. The other ones suck. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're not doing a great job selling it. Right now. <laughs> I know. No, I, really, that, I might have even said it. My joke is like, this course depends on people interacting and talking. So if you don't like the course, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good cop out. Just blame everyone else. Yeah, it's not me. It's you. <laughs> when patients don't get better. No, it must have been them. Right. Uh, it was perfect. <laughs> but when they, when they do get better. Oh, it's all me. Even if it's like the next, within the year, they stopped seeing me. That <laughs> just took time, just had to percolate. <laughs> so Greg, you have a very big interest in running and you, you were saying how the reconciling biomechanics with pain science is it sort of bleeds into your new running course. A big overarching theme in both of these, although I haven't taken the running course yet, is, is movement optimism, which is yes. a term that you've coined. And I think it would be really good for everybody who's listening to this to get an understanding of what movement optimism is. And I think that will set up a really good framework for the rest of our conversation. Yeah, it's easiest to see it in what, it, what it's not. And there's certainly overlap. I do have a blog on my website from six years ago called like uh, uh, movement optimism versus the kinesiopathological model, you know, and sort of like what the difference is. And that's really what it is. It's a reaction to the idea, like, and running was horrible for this for years and, and still is that there's like one, that there's a right way to run, you know, and deviations from that running style will predispose one to injury. Uh, and we, so you, you see that in the running world, like, don't let your knees cave in, don't have knee abduction, don't have a lot of pronation, you have to have lots of hip extension. And then, and then we also see that in the lifting world, in the sitting world, the right, the right posture. And to me, it, I, I've always had issues with that model. This, this has not been new to me. It just ignores the idea that we have an incredible variability in how we all move, uh, the right way for us to move. And it ignores the ability of the person to uh, adapt, you know, mm -hmm. like just, just like if you see someone with lots of pronation, you'd be like, wicked, you're, you're doing that because you're storing and releasing elastic energy and that's how you absorb load. It doesn't mean it's inherently faulty, 
they just might have a different structure than someone in terms of their bones, since so that's how they move, or they could have different uh, elastic properties in their connective tissue, right? So this is the, the this is it that that that's it fundamentally like it's not i'm not saying like how someone moves isn't always irrelevant i mean if someone has an achilles tendinopathy and they forefoot strike then it wouldn't be re it, it would be reasonable to maybe try having them heel striking right so the movement optimism approach is that since there's no one right way to run we have lots of options if we need them hmm. that's it it's so simple yeah yeah, it is. Uh, but it's hard for a lot of people to grasp because we're so <laughs> ingrained in that kinesiopathological model. Uh, yeah, I thought it made moved on, but I did a seminar last year, like an online thing, and I couldn't believe it, like how it was dysfunction junction is with the Canadian <laughs> Physio Association, just like, oh, no, I, make sure it was like wrist pain, make sure you check their, check their scapular kinematics, even though you thought you checked them really find out make sure it's moving in the right way because if it's like slightly off that's why they have elbow pain <laughs> right yeah i was speaking to to ben cormack about this and yeah. he's like we have moved on from that but only within our small little echo chamber and as a whole i think oh, a lot no, of people no. are still stuck in it no yeah so on that notion of faulty biomechanics and there being one best way to run uh, a big claim is that heel striking is really bad for you but you were just saying that heel striking could be a viable solution for someone with an achilles issue so oh, oh, how yeah, would you sure. go about uh dismantling that claim that that heel striking is bad for your knees or that it will it'll cause injury for runners i mean uh at an individual level you can often ask people like how do you like to show them that they, they naturally want to run this way and they're comfortable? Like, and say, what, like, do you view that the, the body is that stupid that'll cause this movement pattern that's so horrible? You know, that, that's one, one way to do it. You can go like a population level and say like 80% of people heel strike when they run. And it's not just, and it's also at an elite level. Right. And then, or you can go the performance way. And there's, I think it's uh, Laura Anderson has a nice systematic review or uh, at least narrative review on it of uh, how heel striking isn't less efficient. You know, when you're, when you run for forefoot striking, it might feel softer, but that cushioning will come out of cost, right? That like, it, 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 like there's the, the cost of, of cushioning there. So like heel striking is not an inherently, uh, 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 sorry, le less efficient. Uh, you could also get into the nitty gritty of biomechanics with people, which will surprise people. It's like we got caught up on, because it's easy to measure, which is impact loading. So when you strike the ground, there's a ground reaction force in the vertical uh, direction. And 10, 15 years ago, when people were big into barefoot riding, they found that barefoot running with a forefoot strike would really decrease the initial peak of when you hit the ground. Total peak was the same but that rate of loading was less. And so the assumption there, the surrogate measure of injury was that rate of loading or the impact peak was associated with injury. And it made intuitive sense. Um, and so if you decrease that, maybe you would decrease your injury rate and heel striking would cause this impact loading. But then biomechanists were saying, well, no, really, maybe impact loading 
isn't related to entry. And just because you have a high impact peak, it doesn't mean that it's easier on, say, the bones or the muscles. And then you look at, this is the work of Emily, I always say her name wrong, Matevovich, you should have her on. Um, and, and she's like, you know, if you have a bone stress injury in the tibia and you strike the ground with your forefoot, it, and just because it's softer and sounds softer, it doesn't mean that there's less strain on the tibia because most of the strain that a bone experiences comes from the muscles. So the strain can actually be, be greater. And there was actually, and this is the thing, a lot of things, things a, lot, a lot of the things we think were myth busting. I know of papers from 2008 saying that really rudimentary ones. So it's not a new idea. So like there's not even less strain on the bone if you run uh, with a forefoot strike. It could be more. So mm. that's cool. There's a shit, tons of, shit ton of ways. You surprised me with that one. I think I got them all. <laughs> <laughs> you must have answered it a thousand times, though. Uh, no, I don't. Like, with my patients, I'm like, how do you want to run? And sometimes it's enough just to say, no, that's totally fine. Take a look at your friends who are uninjured. I guarantee they're heel striking. Like, that's the way I do with patients. And if they want to know more, then we go into that stuff. Right. Like, oh, I didn't know that. Like, yeah, you can heel strike. Go for it. Do you find that people often come to you really open to, to hearing your thoughts because yeah. you're well known? Because yeah. I, I don't have that same experience. <laughs> no, I'm really lucky. I get a lot of that stuff. Or, yeah, I, I don't have to do as much convincing uh, anymore. And I get to do more like coaching or, uh, people kind of want to come and just want advice and be a sound, a sounding board. That's always really nice. That that's a nice way of coaching is people already have these ideas and you get to like support them and you're on the right track. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That must be really nice. Yeah. So it's really interesting that the, the heel striking isn't necessarily more stressful on the bone than the forefoot striking. Uh, and I've heard, I think it was Jason Torrey say this, he was saying how, although one way of running might not necessarily cause injuries more than others, it can shift the stress elsewhere. And, sure. and maybe that could exacerbate an issue. Uh, so is that what you were saying earlier with why it could be more favorable to run with the heel yeah. strike if you have an Achilles issue? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So it would, it would. I mean, there's still going to be Achilles load. It's just at a different time. And so the, or, or here's the thing with heel striking. When, what it could be is people are taking a very long stride. And so they have a low cadence when they run. And when you do that, you tend to heel strike. So we would associate that long stride, which would probably have more loads on the knee uh, with the heel strike. And it's not really the heel striking. It's that they have a really long stride. That's the issue. So often you tell people shorten up your stride and then they have taking, they run with a midfoot strike or a forefoot strike, right? And then their knee might feel better, but it's because they both decreased their stride length and went to a different foot strike. But there, then like with what Jason's saying, where you want to be cautious there is if someone shortens their stride and then goes to a forefoot strike, what's that now going to do to the Achilles? It's, mm. it's a new load that it's not used to, Right. And so now they might, they'll put different stress on the foot now, and then they might be susceptible to that type of injury because they're just not prepared for it. Right. So you mentioned barefoot shoes as well. 
And I think you said that there's more of a tendency for people to forefoot strike when they're wearing maybe a less supportive shoe. Why, why is that? Yeah. So the, it depends where you run. If you just run on a treadmill, you might not change. But if you go in barefoot and you run on asphalt and you have a long stride and you heel strike, you're very likely to shift to a shorter step and land on your forefoot because it just doesn't hurt. Because mm-hmm. it would hurt <laughs> if you did it. Except I did this in, in uh, Norway years ago with the group. We went outside and it, I swear 90% of them, because they're Vikings, didn't change. And they all kept heel striking. Like It's like they had the fattest heel pads in the world. It was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> but, but sometimes people just change autom- automatically. Right. Okay. And we, everyone, the people have been saying this stress shifting for years. It's not always true. Like if you, um, if you're running and you take shorter strides and keep heel striking, you won't really shift the stress anymore, anywhere. You're not going to decrease, you're not going to increase the stress on your ankle and decrease it on your knee. You'll just decrease it on your knee. There won't be much change at the ankle. I know I keep hearing people saying it's always, you're just moving the, sh- the stress around. Not mm-hmm. really with, not every running intervention leads to that. I'm getting academic here, sorry. It it's doesn't okay. matter. Yeah. Is, is there good evidence for uh, footwear and how that might protect against injuries or help people recover from injuries when it comes to running? Because there is a huge market for this. Yeah, I'm... Uh, I'm a simpleton. And I, again, I got, I, again, I, I was, I went to a talk in 1998, so old I am, by Bino Nig, and he really blew out the footwear paradigm back then about pronation and all that stuff. And he really just said, you know, try a shoe that feels comfortable. So I, I, I never got caught up in footprint and shoe, like fitting the shoe to the foot and all that stuff. And so the research kind of supports that. Uh, in general, the systematic reviews. What's the one? It was a really good one. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll get you to link it if people want it. But the Agresta, that's who did it. Uh, she did a systematic review saying, like, no. It, it, and even my bias, which is just choose a shoe for performance and comfort, that actually doesn't have any support either. That's just mm. you might as well choose one that feels good. However, this is really cool. If you want to challenge your beliefs, I don't think the shoe can do it. I don't think you should get a shoe to match like pronation, all that stuff. There is a paper, one by Williams, which is a reanalysis of a paper by Malisu, where they actually sort of said we, and it was a prospective study, they were able to decrease injury uh, risk by matching the shoe to the foot, which Mm. is a real outlier, you know? And so right now you would say, I don't think so, but maybe. And then they went on to say if like shoes will help pronation related injuries. That was the reanalysis. I see. But it's, I don't think it was powered enough to really make strong conclusions. And they were open to that. They, they criticized themselves as well. So uh, if I've just confused you, that's probably the right take. Don't have a strong <laughs> opinion on this. Sorry. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah so when, when there's conflicting evidence on a topic, I guess it just means that you don't have, you don't need to have a a concrete answer about it, but I guess we could be a little bit less certain about it. Yeah. So look at it this way, like with, you've tried, let's, let's say you've, you've chosen a shoe because it feels good uh, and it's lighter or whatever for performance or something like that. And you keep getting injuries. It's, 
it's not unreasonable to say, okay, well, maybe I'm the type of person where I might respond to a shoe match to my foot type. And you tend to have a high navicular drop or something like that. And you're like, I'm going to try a stability shoe. And then boom, it, it works for you. So it's, it's totally fine. It's the same thing with gait modifications. You've, you've tried to run a certain way. It didn't work for you. And you're like, well, I'll try running this other way for a bit. And for whatever reason that resonates with you and it works, we just got to be open to this. There's just too many unknowns right now to have really strong opinions. Yeah. So more about trial and error then, right? Yeah. Like everything. Yeah. There's a, a, another big market for, for gait analysis. And it's just a huge area where people look at how you're running and then try and find, find the the faulty mechanics and try and improve on those things. And you sort of touched on, on why that might not be helpful for everyone or potentially why it could be. Um, but you just said as well that we could try and change someone's gait when they run and see if it works. Now I've also heard the argument that that's really difficult to do sometimes. Totally. Is that the case in your experience? And what does yeah. the evidence say on that? To, to me, I actually think the evidence is weak. Um, there's a lot of research, but the papers often have 10 to 15 subjects in them. They don't have a control group. Uh, and, and people are sort of, and I still do it because I, again, I, I don't need a lot of evidence to give something a try if I know that it, it it's, it's not very risky or something like that. Uh, so the evidence isn't that strong, surprising, surprisingly, I get like, look at it this way. If, if, if with a lot of these gate retraining studies, if you traded gate retraining with ultrasound, <laughs> then our profession would say, Oh, never look at that study. There's no control group. There's only 12 people. There's all these flaws, but because right. it's, because it's not a passive modality, and it's a gate retraining study. We're like, ah, oh, we can give it a try. Like we just have to be more accepting and know that there'll be more research done in the future. It's still, and then it still gets like tentatively recommended in a clinical practice guideline because we're so goddamn inconsistent. Uh, so, sorry. Uh, it's okay. My my take on gate retraining is, if you're not injured, I don't do it. I'll look at people run and I'll film them and I'll just tell them how great they're running and what's going on. And I often inoculate them and I'm like, see how your knees come in here. That's totally fine. That's your running style. Someone's going to tell you in the future that's faulty. It's not, that's just your style. Don't worry about it. You know, and you'll, you'll figure out the best way to run for you. We're we're self-optimizing when it comes to running. If somebody's injured, then potentially we talk about making gait changes. And, and I think you can just do them temporarily. That's mm. it. That mm-hmm. is just a, a subtle change, like changing cadence or something like that. If someone's chronically in pain, like they have knee away, and then you're like, well, this is, this is a persistent pain problem that's unlikely to be healed and they want to keep running. Then you might think, let's go with a four foot strike and a shorter stride just to keep, because we know that will change the stress and that often will help people. Right. So, the, the, there's you're just playing around here, which is all right. But. Yeah. So you said when people are in pain, you might try and change it temporarily. And I think temporarily yeah. is an interesting word there. Yeah, because I, think... I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's like the word capacity. We just throw that yeah. out there. Yeah, I mean, sometimes people just like, sorry, go ahead. You're, I didn't, I, I'm anticipating your question, but 
it's okay. I think you know where I'm going with it. But I guess the assumption there is that the way that they were running isn't necessarily the original cause of their pain. Because if you're okay changing it temporarily, that means that you're okay for them returning back to the old way that they ran. Yeah. So, uh, what, what's the, what's the thought process there? How, how can you be sure that it wasn't the way that they were running before? That's the issue. Oh, you, you can't. It's like, look, look at it this way. You, you could have a, some knee pain for whatever reason, and then you go walk stairs and it hurts on the, on the stairs. You don't say the stairs was the cause of it. You just say it manifests, <laughs> right? Especially yeah, if yeah. they don't have any, st- yeah, it just, it just manifests when they're walking stairs. So I'm like, yeah, you have knee pain. It manifests when you're running. That makes sense because it's more stress on the knee. Okay, why don't we change this up for a little bit? And, you know, you could – there's lots of different ways to do it. You, you could just have, have them run more hills or something like that. Have them avoid downhills. You could ch- just change their, their pace. You, you, know, you know what I mean? These things will – these are gait modifications as well. You're just not consciously saying, let's change how you run. Let's have you run on the track. Let's have you run on, in the trail system. Right. This mm-hmm. is gate. It's not technically retraining, but it's gate modifying. Right. Right. And so we're like, let's just do these modifications to keep you running and things will run their course and settle down. So, simple. It's the same effect as gate retraining. Either way, you're just sort of changing how someone's moving for a little bit while things calm just, down. It, exactly. And then you, you have a good question. There certainly could be a point where someone just can't adapt to anything. And they can't go back to their style, so they'll they'll have to make some. But I think you would only know that after years or something like that. Hmm. Just in the in the short term, it's hard yeah. to say. A lot of frustration for the person that that can't adapt, for sure. Yeah, but then part of the messaging there, and I think we need to get better at this with everything, is like successful running, successful lifetime running is not a pain free runner. That's really unfair to put pressure on yourself and anyone who says that that they should everyone should be running pain-free they that there's i have an issue with that successful runners have pain all the time or at least they have bouts on a regular basis and they just figure out ways to work around it and as soon as you accept that things can hurt sometimes it takes the stress off and it for me it removes the catastrophizing and rumination you're like oh my ankle is shitty today I'm just not going to run as fast. I'm not going to do those hills. I'm going to change something up. I'm going to add some hard, hard hiking in here or something like that. I'm really happy you brought this up because I did want to ask you if it was okay to run in pain. And for a lot of people that hear that and aren't very aware of you and your messaging, that could be really shocking. Right, because oftentimes pain is is looked at as something that isn't okay, and it's a sign that things are going to get worse. And I just had a, a patient recently who's has a, a flexor halysis longus tendon issue, and it's been around for a year now. And there hasn't yeah. been any running in a year. And when I asked her if, yeah, that's that's what we sort of ended off on last time. If I asked her, do you know if running makes it worse? And it's been so long where she's not even sure at this point. Like, it's yeah. okay to have a little bit when you run. Um, and now, now I feel that way because... I'm heavily influenced by you. So can you sort of explain the rationale and why it is okay to run with a little bit of pain? And when isn't it? Yeah. So let's start with that first. So you have to know that they're safe, right? This is any time anyone has pain anywhere with low back pain. I don't want them to have cancer. I don't want an infection. You know, 
Like, uh, I, you, you have to know that they're safe and you have to understand the problem. If people have like ankle pain, you also want to make sure that that's not some like rheumatological condition. They also have like swollen fingers or changes in their nails and stuff like that. So we still got to be a good, good clinician here. Now, a person like that, they could still run with that pain, but we also want to make sure that they're being co-managed by a rheumatologist and has some like medication as well. So we got to understand mm -hmm. the, the, the pain problem here. And as soon as we understand that, then we can go. Or like you, want, you don't want it to be like a stress fracture or something like that. Or if it is a stress fracture, you need to know. And then if it's like low risk and they have pain while they're finishing their marathon that they've been training eight months for, you could say, you know what, you, you can do the last 10K with it hurting if it's a stress fracture because this is like a low risk stress fracture. It's going to suck for a while. But if, if you want to push it, you're allowed to. But if it's high risk, like in the hip and it's a femoral neck, you would say you should probably not poke into pain here because it can snap in half. <laughs> and you could die or whatever. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like that, like you got to you got to understand it. So as soon as you understand it, then you're like, yeah, let's let's go for it here. And then if mm -hmm. it's I'm I'm pretty cool with backing off at the initial stages. Right. Or you try like a few weeks of just nudging into pain and then or if, or if it's the time of year where they don't it's just base building. You'd be like, oh, let's just take it easy. Let's do more walking. Let's do more cross training. You don't always have to poke into pain. Then we would start poking the pain with these persistent things. Neo way, greater trochanteric pain syndrome, Achilles tendinopathy. You know, that's just been around forever. You know, that's just like or they just have that wonky knee syndrome. My knee's always sore. And like for those people. Yeah, just accepting some and slowly building their mileage and all of those things. That that's when you got to make that decision. It's the living well with pain approach. Hmm. Yeah. So this sort of gets back or gets into an idea that I noticed that I've struggled with myself uh, recently, and I'm starting to question my own beliefs on this. And I would love for you to dismantle my own beliefs. And it sort of gets into the idea of uh, wanting to build someone back up to run if they've been avoiding it for a long amount of time. So I saw someone recently with uh, bilateral knee pain, ruled out anything very serious. Seems like it's just kneecap pain. And they have avoided running for the past two months or so uh, and have been avoiding you know, lifting in ways that are really uncomfortable for their knees. And I realized that I have a tendency to not get them back into running right away. In, in yeah. a lot of cases, I, I think I, I've noticed that in my head, I'm thinking, okay, we need to build up your capacity, whatever that means, yeah. uh, maybe lift some weights, and then that will help you get back into running. So I guess this is a two part question. Number one, do, do runners get injured because they're not lifting weights? or because they're not strong enough. And then the other one is, um, is it okay to just start running right away if someone's been avoiding it for a while and you've ruled out anything serious? Yeah. I apologize is, if it's a, no, no, it's this, a bit this loaded. This is my favorite. I've, I've had these debates forever, you know? And again, my pat answer is we do both because we can't know, right? Uh, but I, I, I've heard people say you need to earn the right to run. You need to do all these you have to be able to do a single leg squat test 10 times and 20 calf races. And I'll, I'm like, no, you don't. You can just go run. Like, it, like we, 
we shouldn't be ignoring like the said principle, right? The best thing that prepares you to run is to run. Those other things might build up additional attributes that have a halo effect that help you as well. But I would do them all, all together. I think we can just start running for the vast majority of people and then the body will adapt. And it's just a question of getting the dosage right. So there is, I do have a blog and there's like a whole section in the course of that it's just called running as rehab. That should be the fundamental of your rehab and everything else is an adjunct. All of our strength training and all of that stuff. Those are adjuncts to running. That That's really my point. And, and so like people talk about strength, right? And they have to say, what do you mean by, by strength? Like the ability to produce force because you can increase your force production 30% in like three to six weeks of training. Why would that make the tissue more resilient? That's like a nervous mm -hmm. system adaptation where you just got better at recruiting motor units. How is the tissue stronger now? Or why would there be less nociception if you just increase strength, right? So that's why you actually won't see, and it, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't exist, it just hasn't been tested. You, you don't see quadricep strength as a risk factor for future patellofemoral pain, except in military recruits. It's certainly weak hips is certainly not a risk factor for kneecap pain in runners. In fact, you tend to see like greater hip strength being associated with kneecap pain. That might, there's, there's confounding variables there for sure. Maybe the stronger person is a better athlete. They just train more and all that stuff, but whatever. So it's, it's really not so cut and dry. You have to ask what people mean by strength and stuff like that. So I don't think people need to strength train to be a healthy runner, but I think it can certainly help some people. It's just not, it's just, I, I still advocate it because uh, I want to cover all of my bases, but does that, does that answer your question? Is that what you're looking for? It does. It yeah. does. And I think it's really interesting what you were saying about the increase in force production based off of the nervous system adapting in the short term and, and not right. the actual tissues becoming you know, stronger or whatever. Or, yeah. Or so how would a... that, how would that increase tissue capacity? Cause you can, you know, increase your leg press force. Right. right. And strength is very specific. It certainly carries over, but like what's running strength versus weight room strength. Right. I know you, mm -hmm. if you can go out and run five minutes with me, then I know you're strong enough to run. <laughs> right. Cause you just did it. That's the test. There's all these people who are like, Oh, before you run, you should, you should do skipping and hopping. Why don't you just run? If they can run yeah. 10 seconds. Well, that's our, that's our prescription. Go for 20 minutes, every two minutes, run 10 seconds. Awesome. There you, you just did. I don't know the math right away. You just did a hundred seconds of running next week. Let's do 200 seconds. Yeah. Right. That'll cause mm -hmm. the adaptation. Yeah. I think I'm, certainly guilty of this. And if I, I've actually spoken to you about this when I was taking your course, but I see at the clinic, a lot of people coming off of ACL injuries, ACL surgeries, and maybe this is a bit of a different realm. And yeah. I, I was asking you about the McHugh's return to run checklist for people with uh, or, or coming back from ACL surgeries. And part of that is making sure that their quads are 70% symmetrical uh, in terms of the force that they could produce. And then, as you mentioned, doing some hop tests and doing some uh, yeah. some calf raises. So is, is that population different? So I think Mick has that because they're not returning to running. Running is the stepping stone to playing field sports. 
that that's what, I think if it was just returning to running, that's where mm. you could have the debate. And the idea there, and I really like it. This is, this is a good question of like, when do you have to be specific? So, well, you know this, but I'll say it for everyone. It's like certain injuries that we have, like, especially a structural one, our, our body's predisposition is to protect that and to unload it. And that becomes our habit. We see it in the spine with people who are afraid to move and all that stuff. So we see it in the knee. So when they run, it's ironic, but they, they don't bend their knee as much, right? So they, it's un, what they'll, they'll say, the knee is underloaded, right? And I've had this debate. I'm like, well, so what? That's when you take shorter steps, you're underloading the knee. That's the whole point to help someone out with kneecap. So it's, we're very inconsistent in how we view load in our things. And, and so the idea there is that person, it's fine to underload it when you're running. Where it might be a problem is the underloading or the less loading when you're running is a it's a canary in the coal mine. That's in and of itself. That's not problematic. It's a symptom that the knee might not be as healthy as it is. So that's why you still want to do long term strength training because it, it might be telling you that there's something up with the, the the system, the ecosystem of the knee itself, and it just that's it shows up when they're running. But it's not because I'll have these people will say, well, Greg, you're underloading the, the knee when they're running. You can't have them run. I'm like, so do you want them to walk? Wouldn't that be even more underloading? Like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Or yeah, yeah. so should they take longer strides when they run to, and not have short steps? So it's right. really is like the, it's the, that's the canary in the coal, coal mines underloading. I don't think it's problematic inherently as they run like that, but if it just shows you that their knee is still weak and not as healthy as it could be. And if they're returning to a field sport or maybe long-term joint health, you should probably address the, the strength there. Mm -hmm. Does that, okay. That's a bit convoluted. So I apologize to everyone like that. I've been trying to write a blog on that to put it all together, but it, it's messy. But again, this is the thing. In practice, it doesn't matter. I would be like, if you just want to get back to running, Let's start you running, even with this underloading or this protective strategy, and let's see how it goes. And let's keep doing strength training as well to build you up. Mm -hmm. I, just, I don't so, think there's like a checklist people need there. Yeah. If you were working with someone who was coming off of an ACL surgery, at what point do you think you'd be okay with them returning to run? You know, you're saying you could just try running, uh, but... You certainly wouldn't do that post-op day one. So he, I, I'm really cool with listening to experts like Mick on this stuff. I, I really appreciate he's seen way more people than I have with ACLs. So I, I, I'm all right with if someone said we should wait until at least like I believe in respecting tissue sometime. So mm -hmm. I think I think they would probably say four to six months or something like that. I, I, I'd be pretty cool with that with having and I know it's always supposed to be like criterion based progression. But I think waiting on certain timelines sometimes is is all right as well. Yeah. So I, I think it's often, I, yeah. often three months. Um, but uh, of course having the criteria there is, yeah. uh, being met as well is, is important in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Th th those, th those are tough ones. It just depends what the goal is there. And I, I don't mm -hmm. want to have a strong opinion there. I just really like talking about that area because I find it fascinating. <laughs> it is. And another thing that I find fascinating related to this is, is this whole paradox or this inconsistency between underloading and loading. And you said something before that I thought was really profound and really changed uh, how I viewed this. But there is an argument that people who are overweight are putting too much stress on their knee. 
And you pointed out that that's really inconsistent because what would we do with those people in a lot of cases? We'd get them to lift some weights and put more stress through their knee. Could you sort of explain your reasoning and, and your thought process around that? Oh, it's the pro- profession has a huge problem with what we think of, of stress. To be like, uh, don't don't let your knees cave in because it increases the load on the lateral patellar facet thirty percent. And I'm like, well, uh, and then and then they go tell people to do squats, which increases the load three hundred percent. It's so weird. Uh, and with the knee, the knee OA stuff, like the and and being overweight. Like we tell people you need to lose weight to decrease the loads on the knee. But then ironically, what happens in a subset of people, they increase the load on the knee because they take longer steps and they, they walk more. So, that, so, and then they do fine 18 months later, even though the knee load is greater. So we really mm-hmm. need to like change or, or, or just question our view of is load a force for good or, or evil would be the mm-hmm. idea. And I'm not saying losing weight isn't a viable um, treatment strategy for knee OA. It's just, you know this, it's probably occurring via, it's helpful for some other mechanism besides changing the load on the knee. Yeah. Would, would be the big idea there. Yeah. Right. It's almost as if there's more than one factor that's involved when it comes to the pain. <laughs> it certainly is. Yeah, we just get caught up in really <laughs> simplistic. I had a nice meeting with a, a knee OA researcher this morning. We, we talked about that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Just we get just we just get caught up on certain surrogates surrogate measures like knee strength and think, and we'll judge a treatment because oh that treatment's no good like manual therapy because it won't you know increase your knee strength, and I'm like so what? Your assumption there is that knee strength is the thing that has to change for someone to get better. Maybe they just need to feel more confident and safe and taken care of and have a locus of control. And the manual therapy helps them do that. And then they start walking more and engaging in their life more and being happier again <laughs> and boom, yeah. they get better. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just you saying that I'm just trying to get it in the minds of some other people who, who still really live in the biomechanical world. And I think that's really hard for people to accept that it isn't just strength that makes people get better when they're recovering from pain. And we have, research in a few areas now that show that when you're doing exercise strength exercises people can often feel a little bit better because of that but it's not necessarily because they gained an ability to produce more force if you measure it before and after so uh yeah i think there's often more than one thing that's going on when people are getting better and and sure we don't always know right no no we certainly don't that's okay. Doesn't mean mm-hmm. you can't help people. Like yeah. you can invest in the stock market and you don't know why your stocks went up. Like it's a super complex system. Mm-hmm. Right. But you can, you can still, you you still know how to, you know, maybe increase your savings. Right. Yeah. Right. You can still detect going, some patterns, right? Yeah. There's yeah. trends that, that people know. Mm-hmm. You don't know exactly what caused Apple stock to go up. Yeah. Not like the price of child labor decreased. Anyways, <laughs> oh my God. Sorry. <laughs> it's the okay. worst. <laughs> yeah. Um, Greg, have you always been... Yes. Uh, <laughs> this much of a dick? This critical? Yeah, yeah. How'd Sorry, you know? That. Yes. Actually. 
that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Uh, have, have you always been this way? Yeah. Yeah. I've loved like questioning things and I've been surrounded by people that have, when I was an undergrad, like even before I had PDFs, I would read, just randomly read the stacks and I always had questions and I had, I had good professors in my undergrad that were really good at challenging stuff as well. And they um, rewarded questions that I would have. They would never shut me down. It just, mm. just continued. Yeah. And same with my masters. And it was just, 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 just my thing. And then I had certain biases against things and questioning them would help support that. <laughs> this is a huge reason why I respect you so much. And it's because you are critical of things and it's not just other people's points that you have a bias against. Uh, although I'm sure that has happened before, but it's also your own yeah. biases and your oh, yeah, own yeah. beliefs. So on that topic, are there things that you have really changed your mind about in the past? And I think if so, it would be really useful for people to hear your rationale and, and your thought process about why you changed your mind. So I haven't had any massive epiphanies. I swear I was really lucky. Before I went to Cairo school, I did my master's with two Kairos doing their PhD. And so I never had any of the manual therapy mumbo jumbo and, you know, joints out of place and all that stuff. And my thesis was all about the neurophysiological mechanisms of spine manipulation, you know, and, and all that stuff. So I was really uh, lucky. And I remember going to like, active release technique courses, they talk about breaking up adhesions and tissues. And I'm like, I think this helps people, but I don't think we're doing that. And I was super comfortable taking a pragmatic approach to helping people. So I remember being in my fourth year at chiropractic college, you're like, Greg, why are you cracking the back? What joint is out of place? And I'm like, no joints out of place. Well, what segment are you cracking? The lumbar segment. (laughs) (laughs) What's your reference? Like layman, 2001, motherfucker. Like, (laughs) like, I think they have pain. That's it. That's enough. They hurt. It's safe to try manipulation. I'm going to do it. Or like an active release. I remember they would just do the whole body. They would just do manual therapy throughout the whole body. And they think, oh, it's the anatomy trains and they, they pull out Tom Meyer's book and I'm like, hey, you just got the person moving. And I'm like, but I'll still do this pragmatically. This, this is helpful. So I never really got into that stuff. So the, the, the changes I've made through the years that actually I've kind of softened in some of my criticism trying to like, uh, I probably say no too quickly to certain things. Oh, that's bullshit because it doesn't, because the mechanism doesn't work that way. You know, like I'd say, oh, Shirley Sarman stuff or the kinesio path model. Oh, that's that's garbage. Who cares if the knee caves in? But now, or at least not now, I'd say the past 10 years, I've been more like, it's not bullshit. You're still going to help a lot of people with the kinesio pathological model. It's just not helpful for that reason. That's the, like, I've, I've softened in things. And like, same, uh, actually, I've, I, I'm not against manual therapy. I don't really do it much anymore. But I, I also don't want to denigrate manual therapy or stretching or yoga. And I, 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 I would denigrate stretching in the past because I'm saying, well, what's the point of stretching? You're not really going to lengthen the connective tissue. You're not going to make the person stronger. And then I'm like, well, why, is, is that a reason to hate stretching? That could still help someone with knee pain for some other reason. Mm-hmm. So like I try to like expand my criticism to maybe give people more options almost that, 
that that's how I've changed through through the years. Like if I'm really critical, I'm like, oh no, there there could be something else going on here. I should stop mm -hmm. saying no so quickly to things. Right. Maybe you could say no quickly to those mechanisms, but not Absolutely. necessarily the utility. Yeah, mm. I, that, that, that's it exactly. You know, someone was like, talked about stretching the other day to help with their patients. And, and I was like, yeah, it doesn't do the things we thought. And I was really against stretching 20 years ago. Uh, I was like the original physio hipster. Uh, uh, and people, <laughs> like people say, runners shouldn't stretch, it won't decrease injuries. And I'm like, Oh, well, I agree with that. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't stretch that. Or they'll be like, it'll make them less stiff and it'll decrease performance. I'm like, well, that's not true. It won't do that. But that doesn't mean they shouldn't stretch. There's potentially other benefits if you're in pain with stretching. You, and in order to denigrate it, you would need a good research study that compares stretching for, say, knee pain versus strengthening. And we have a few of those. And guess what? Strengthening doesn't outperform stretching. It's... It's bonkers to me. And yet I would have denigrated it 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm an asshole. I apologize to all those people. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, so you said that stretching won't decrease stiffness. And uh, it doesn't decrease joint stiffness. It decreases muscle stiffness in a tiny way if you're able to measure it, but it's very complicated. It certainly won't change tendon or connective tissue stiffness in the long term. It does in the short term, but that's like viscoelastic things. So mm -hmm. it's kind of cool. Uh, stretching tendons might actually change the viscoelastic properties of, of a tendon, but they just won't be less stiff. In fact, they might be more stiff in some ways, but that's another topic. <laughs> stretching can make tendons more stiff. So it depends how you measure stiffness. There's something called the hysteresis loop, which is just like... Um, there's a difference in this in the response to to load on the way up of loading something, and then when you relax, stretching seems in some studies changes the relaxation part of that curve, where it's actually kind of more stiff. Hmm. It's mind blowing. It means the tendon's more efficient, which is so cool. <laughs> but right. it makes sense if you watch like I was um, uh, dancers or gymnasts or sprinters through the years are incredibly powerful and super flexible and they stretch all the time mm -hmm. anyways it's so interesting yeah no it, it's fascinating yeah you said very briefly that you don't do manual therapy a ton anymore oh why is yeah it? not uh, not i'm not against it it's just the people yeah. like you asked me earlier who's coming to see me i get a lot of like more consulting and online stuff and and coaching and uh, people want to know things and exercise and and they, they've had lots of manual therapy in the past so uh yeah, I, if I'm just going to see someone once every three weeks, it's probably not wor worthwhile or something like that. So mm -hmm. it's not a, it was not a conscious decision. I really believe it. I, I think if you're in practice, people are going to come for you for manual therapy. It's totally fine to give that to them. And then when you're doing manual therapy, you get to talk to them. And that's, that's where you get to talk about health and load management and all these other things. But most people aren't going to come to you wanting to talk to you about health and load management and all those other things. They ex expect that manual therapy. And if we're going to be patient-centered, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. Right. Right. So yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I, I, I'm really against the I'm, – I'm against people who are so against it for whatever reasons. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you're saying that 
it's in general a really good idea to take a comprehensive approach to rehab. And while strength might not be the issue, it could still be a good idea to do strengthening totally. exercises for other reasons. You can still run, you can still stretch. Uh, and also manual therapy, I guess, would feed into that comprehensive approach as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I would think so. Yeah. Yep. Is there anyone that you... Sorry, go ahead. You go ahead. I'll, I'll get back to it. I was just saying there's so many... We have to... Like, people are so different. And I, I really think, again, this being critical should increase your options. Right? That that's it. We closed too many doors, right? And, and I think we should be looking at how many. Like, it's great to help people with exercise for NeoA, but I wouldn't throw manual therapy under the bus, and that's what the re research tells me. I wouldn't even throw passive modalities under the bus, which is amazing to me because I can't believe I'm saying that now. But if you're honest, if you honestly look at the systematic reviews, exercise is not outperforming passive modalities for people with NeoA, which is just bonkers i can't like 20 years ago i'd be so against modalities and all that stuff you know because it just didn't fit with what my biases were and in what way people, does it not outperform when you when you look at this the systematic reviews yeah you, but what they, outcome they will, pain and function oh function too. No, and not just pain function yeah right yeah. Th this is this is the thing like uh yeah, it, 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 it's so unbelievable, but you won't see them recommended in clinical practice guidelines, yet you'll, you'll see reviews showing that they're okay. Because often what happens, again, what happens in the clinical practice guideline is people voting, and it's their opinion that gets into mm -hmm. the practice guideline. So they'll say, oh, those, those passive interventions, they didn't have good control groups, we shouldn't recommend them. But exercise never has a good control group, and I'm still going to recommend it. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Oh, I just yeah. want options for people. Yeah. It's a nice way of looking at things. It's that's why after I took your course that everything was a little bit more simple in my practice, because I thought you had to be so much more specific before. And I didn't have as many options realizing that, uh, you know, like many things work just because the mechanisms aren't what we say they are. That doesn't yeah. mean that they're not useful. No. And I'm not saying like, we as clinicians need to ha provide everyone with lots of options. We could double down on things they love. Like I love prescribing heavy load. That's, mm -hmm. I feel comfortable doing that. So that's what I'm going to do. Right. I'm not going to pull out an ultrasound machine, but at the same time, I can't tell someone, Oh, you suck. Cause you have an ultrasound machine. Mm. Does that, that. Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. It's just, it's so interesting though, because that's always the argument against, passive modalities like ultrasound or tens it's that anything can be useful for pain you know whether the ultrasound machine is on or off it could be useful mm -hmm. for pain but exercise is the best because it gets people stronger and healthier and improves their function but I, I find it really interesting that when you when you look at the passive modalities that they can increase function as well i wasn't aware of that because if you have less pain what are you going to end up doing often you yeah. might be more active mm -hmm. and that's function. That's mobility. Right. That's yeah. less disability. So I don't know if a passive modality will increase your timed up and go or something like that, or your number of like squats you can do, but that's mm -hmm. like a very crude measure of function. Function is like 
How did you feel when you went to the grocery store today? Oh, my knee felt better. Okay, good. We improved your function. You got to go to the grocery store. You had less disability and suffering. Do, yeah. Do you know what I mean? That that like that that's that's what people care about. They don't yeah. care that they did their timed up and go in half a second shorter or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> yeah, we have so many weird outcomes in the studies, but the most important one is does the person feel better? Are they enjoying their life more? Do they feel more confident? Do they feel like they have a better ability to deal with their own pain? Yeah. I mean, people who don't have NEOA, like, what is it? That, I think it's only 13% of people really exercise. People mm. just don't want to. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, yeah, they're, they, they don't, you could be like, oh, you exercise, improve your function. I'm like, I'm fine with my function. I'll <laughs> go with my friends and drink beer and just like hang out at home. And you know what I mean? Like, they're okay. Like, yeah. people don't, if we're, again, with patient-centered care, are we, are we forcing onto them what we think is important, right? That, that's mm. the issue. Yeah. Oh. And most physios are, maybe I'm, I'm generalizing too much here, but do like exercise and they do like living a healthy yeah. lifestyle and playing oh. sports. And that's why we got into this originally. So maybe oh. we are pushing things onto people too much. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong for advocating for health, but mm-hmm. people have to get to the stage where that's what they want themselves. Yeah. And again, this is the thing of options, especially with rehab. If, if our goal is to advocate for health, we should be open to how many different ways you can do it. Right. So some with knee away, do they really need to do squats? Can they just go for a walk? Can they hike? Can they go on the trampoline? Can they rock climb? Right. What, whatever mm-hmm. they want, can they garden? Right. That those, those are the things that, and so if you, if you just get caught up on knee strength, you're going to ignore all these other options that we have for people. Yeah. Do you have time for a couple more questions, Greg? Yeah, I got five minutes. I got I got to talk with Jimmy at one ten. Jimmy, what's the guy? PT Pint, the Pint guy. He's out of the I don't know. <laughs> Jimmy something. Sure. I want to say Walker, but that's not it. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, coming at this from a business perspective, because unfortunately. Yeah, good. You, PTs only get paid when they see people. Yep. If someone comes to you with NEOA and you tell them that, hey, you have a lot of options, anything could work. Do you want to walk more? Go do that. I think some people might hear that and think, I, I can't keep this person as a client because they're going to be off on their own very quickly. So what's, what's your advice? Uh, I, my advice is to, we need to keep the good people in this profession not leave it's okay to see people three more times than than you think you can still provide value here and so you want to come up with the areas that you think you can provide value right so some of that would be follow-ups like so i would never just say oh just go out and walk more Mm -hmm. right when you if you're taking a like a functional approach like that of activity it's about coaching now i need you to come back because we got to check your mileage and we're going to track how much you're doing, you know, you're getting into the behavior change world. So like that you still have value. You're going to see them three weeks from now and check in and see how they're doing. And then, then you can start saying there's other things that we can add here. If you talk about NEOA as a system wide thing, now you start talking about it's, it's the health of the whole system and it's aerobic exercise, it's physical activity, you know, like, so there's still lots that you can provide here. Right. So that, yeah. And, and, you know, you can still do manual therapy and things like that. Right. Cause they, 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 so 
that that's like whatever it is that you offer, then then you go 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 with that. Okay, that's yeah, good advice. Don't, don't feel I hate the stuff online again. So I grew up in the ART world, and and the experts would be like, I get everyone better in one to two visits. Well, bullshit number mm. one and then that's not that's a crappy business model you don't it's it's okay to see people a number of times like there's still val- value here especially in just checking in with them and asking like the and providing knowledge and the, the questions that we can answer mm-hmm. i think a lot of really well-meaning physios have guilt um, uh, about seeing people too often but yeah i guess if too. they realize that the value that they could give someone there's a less of a reason to have that guilt yeah it's, it's almost like you want it you could, what i would recommend and i don't work this way it doesn't work for me but i've thought about it it's like you can almost create a, a program you know that's that for, for almost every condition where it's like it's five to seven sessions and this is what you work on each session mm. that that would be my my thought process for people who are hesitant about that like here, this is what we're gonna do first sec, and it's it's like education and activity and exercise based. Mm-hmm. You know, you just tailor it to the person that 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 might help for some people like that. You know, because it's because here's the, th- the the problem when you just when you just tell people oh go just do whatever you want, that's not really gonna help change their behavior. People like I, I used to always pay for running coaches when I was running. It wasn't because I needed someone like I could design my own programs. I just wanted someone else to do it for me, and people. Mm-hmm pay for that. And so that's kind of what you're doing. Like you're going to, you're going to create their activity program for the next few weeks when they mm-hmm. come in, you know, check on their movements and exercises or whatever. If you want to do that. Yeah. Uh, just my thought there. Thank you for sharing that. Greg, where can people learn a bit more about you? Uh, where can they connect with you? And do you have anything else that you maybe want to plug at the end of this podcast? Um, on, well, my website's greglayman.ca and then, uh, uh, Twitter is probably where I'm most online, a little bit on Instagram. I don't like it as much. And that's just Greg Lehman, uh, uh, again. Yeah. So I'm all the stuff I'm selling is there. <laughs> okay. No, my running course, I do have my running course. I think it's great. The, 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 my two online courses, what I'm happy about them is like, I will plug this. I think people first think people charge too much. Uh, and so we, we put our rates $200 or $300 lower than everyone else for that stuff. Uh, but if you take the online course and I've taken way too many courses to realize that they were shit and I wish I wanted my money back. But, uh, if you take the online course, you get to apply that to the in-person course. It counts as a mm. coupon. Yeah. That's my favorite thing that, that I made up. I thought a lot of other people would follow me in doing that. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And I can vouch for reconciling uh, biomechanics with pain science. It was amazing. And I will be taking the running one, uh, I guess, online first, because I don't know when yeah. you'll be doing it in Toronto. Me, me neither. I have to like, uh, that's the thing. If anyone's listening and they want to host me somewhere in the world, yeah, let, let me know. I don't really go out of my way to like go and uh, uh, find spots. I should do that. Uh, <laughs> you're just recruited and you show up yeah that that's it it's not i'm not like the best business for, i you know what it's not true i did it i'm in australia again this september and i will i do go out of my way to like if i get one invite to australia then i'll go out and get some more so i do do it 
for some places. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I'll try to do, you know what? I'll, I, I'm going to do a running course this, in December, like next year for sure then. I'll do, I'll do something in Toronto. If we're, oh, sorry, in Toronto. Toronto December. this coming December 2024 no I'm full this year I think yeah I'm pretty full this year okay so bonk, 2023 is yeah, bonkers yeah all right well maybe I'll see you then sure yeah it's a long time okay. I just realized that it's only 20 yeah okay. yeah it is I won't take too much more of your time Greg but I really really am appreciative for you coming on I hope everybody learned something um I know I always do when when I speak to you or listen to you so uh, you're, you're really, really appreciated. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a review. If you would like to follow me on social media, you can follow me at noahmandel.physio on Instagram and TikTok. Have a wonderful day and remember to keep moving forward.